I'd like to talk about patience, the, um, which I'd like to define as the capacity to endure discomfort without bitterness. Um, I think that's about it, isn't it, really? I mean, uh, it's not a teeth-gritting enduring. It's enduring without bitterness, um, which uh, is very profound when you think about it because it involves a certain amount of wisdom and a certain amount of faith. Um, it requires the wisdom of knowing that things pass. requires having the wisdom of knowing that there are certain things that you cannot change. Essentially, it requires knowing the serenity prayer about having the courage to change that which you can and the ability to accept that which you can't change and the wisdom to know the difference. requires a certain amount of faith as well, a kind of personal faith that um, difficulty is endurable. I think that one of the great um, hindrances in life or one of the great constrictions in life to living fully and... um, uh, openly in every moment is our fear that discomfort might arise and we wouldn't be able to manage it. So we circumscribe our life, let me not do that thing or put myself in that situation or allow that thought or that feeling to arise because it would be more than I can manage. There isn't anything really that's more than we can manage. I think it's one of the uh, lessons of personal practice and of clarity. There are some things that are very, very, very painful, but everything is manageable. I think that's a fundamental way of restating dharma. Everything is manageable or endurable. And that secure knowledge leads to a kind of freedom of action in the world, um, which I think is a reflection of wisdom. And I think that that's part of what's involved in the ability to be patient. Personal faith and some amount of what you might call cosmic faith, the fact that uh, the ability under certain circumstances to say, well, I wish this weren't happening and I don't know why it's happening, but it's happening. So maybe there's a larger way of understanding what's happening or I need to surrender to the um, sense that there's a larger framework of understanding this which I currently don't see. You know, we, I think it's um, kind of one of the axioms of Western um, faith sayings about the Lord works in mysterious ways. It's not the kind of thing that you want to hear when you're in personal pain, that this is, there's some mysterious way that this actually has a meaning. But it actually, I think, requires a certain um, tremendous faith to be able to say that this has a meaning on some level. Not apparent to me now, but I'm open to that, which enables one to endure. So I know that Jack said I was going to talk about uh, the teachings on patience that His Holiness the Dalai Lama did in Tucson last month, which I had the great good fortune to be able to be present at. And I am mostly going to talk about that. His Holiness did a teaching on a text... um, called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, Shanti Deva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. This is a recipe book for how to become a bodhisattva. And chapter 6 is a chapter on patience, and that's what was taught for the whole week. I also have as my text for tonight uh, a Jataka tale called The Magic of Patience, and Horton Hatches the Egg, uh, which... Uh, I actually felt a little embarrassed about bringing... Um, nah, I'm not embarrassed. I thought His Holiness taught Shanti Deva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And it's appropriate for me to bring Horton and the Jataka tale because that's about the level that I'm at. But actually, uh, if we get up to have enough time to talk about Horton and the Jataka tale... It, it's a little bit silly to do an exegesis of text on such a fundamental text, but I think that Horton is more a reflection of how most of us are. Horton manages to endure a little bit with teeth gritting, but uh, mostly because he knows it's the right thing to do to endure, and he does it out of faith and consideration and the fact that 
uh, he knows what's the right thing to do, but it's very hard for him. In the Jataka tale, the special being who's a great buffalo, who's more of a, who's really a Buddha or a Bodhisattva, endures not only because he thinks it's the right thing to do, but he does it out of a genuine sense of compassion. It's not hard for him to endure, and it's a little hard for Horton. So I like to read you the two if we have enough time, because I think Horton is more like us, and the great buffalo is more like the Buddha. But really, first, I want to tell you about the uh, the teachings on uh, in Tucson, and I, I will tell you a little bit about the text, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, and the chapter on patience, but. I want to tell you at the outset that what was much more important to me than the text of, of what His Holiness taught was how He is, because I really think that's where the learning happens. I mean, the medium is the text. No, the, the, the message is the text, or whatever I want to say, but the text is the text. The message is how He is. That was really what was important for me. In the, in the beginning, before I went, I had never uh, really been in that sort of situation before, but I knew from friends of mine that one never refers to His Holiness as other than His Holiness. You'd say the Dalai Lama, but you don't tend to say, um, what did you think of what He taught this morning? You say, what did you think when His Holiness said da-da-da, even when He's not there? I mean, obviously when you talk to Him, He's called Your Holiness or... Uh, in a discussion with him there, one might say, would you please ask His Holiness on my behalf with him there. When he's not there, you refer to him as His Holiness. And in the beginning, I thought, felt a little funny, you know, like we're not used to saying things like Your Holiness or Your Eminence or Your Highness. or It's kind of like out of a play of my childhood or out of a fairy tale. And actually, what happened to me is that once you get there, it seems like the most natural thing in the world. He's really a very holy man. And it's the easiest thing in the world to say His Holiness because it seems exactly right. In a very plain and ordinary way, His Holiness emanates holiness. And I'd like to give you some examples, first of all, of what He taught, but how He taught that were particularly meaningful to me. And transformative, because I think I'm different from having been there. I mean, I'm me, and, but there are ways in which I feel myself to be quite remarkably uh, touched and moved in an enduring way. So we might start with, uh, I, I found a quote from um, an early Dalai Lama book where His Holiness says, quote, we must find ways to implement the causes from which happiness arises and eliminate the bases that give rise to suffering. That's it. That's pretty simple. We must find ways to implement the causes that give rise to happiness and eliminate the bases that give rise to happiness. It's the most straightforward thing. In terms of the first part of that, implementing the causes, I think that means acting more skillfully in the world, practicing generosity, practicing compassion, discovering through the practice of those things that they act, actually bring joy and happiness. Through the doing of them. I remember being so touched by um, a response that His Holiness made about, in some question and answer period about um, explaining the Buddhist religion and he said, my religion is kindness. That's so simple, isn't it? My religion is kindness. When you think about it, if that is our practice, it requires endurance and patience and thoughtfulness and consideration and really fundamentally wisdom. My religion is kindness. That generosity and compassion as practices, sometimes we think of them as leading to happiness. I actually think it's one of those equations where the arrows go both ways. I think generosity and compassion are a manifestation of happiness, reflection of happiness. That when we are happy, we are generous and we are compassionate. Don't you think that? I think that they are the qualities that radiate 
from the space of happiness. It's easy to be generous when you're happy, and it's easy to be compassionate when you're happy. When you're not happy, all there's all this self-centered energy. I'm not happy. And it's hard to even notice other people around you to be generous to or to be compassionate about. It's really a reflection of happiness. The second part of it, eliminate the bases that give rise to suffering. So we have to eliminate those things that lead to us causing harm, causing pain, because then they make others unhappy and they make us unhappy ultimately. And understanding that that sort of tendency to cause pain or to act in a way that creates pain comes from the arising in the mind of hindrances, of greed or hatred or delusion, and not seeing them clearly. (coughs) So that if we are alert to the awareness, the arising in the mind of, of greed or the arising of anger, then we can be sure not to act on them in a way that causes pain to others and ourselves. If we're not alert to them, if we're not clear, then we might act in that way and uh, not be eliminating the causes that give rise to suffering. Both of those two, implementing the causes that give rise to happiness and eliminating the bases that give rise to suffering, require patience. They require the patience of waiting around long enough to see clearly what's going on, not behaving without reflecting. That's, I think, the one of the crucial ways of understanding the pivotal role of patience. I used to I have a, um, a little card in my office. I have a therapy practice, and I see a lot of couples. And I used to have a little card in my office, which I would lend to people. They would take it home, Xerox it, put it on their refrigerator. It was a, um, a passage out of the Vinaya, the monk's rules, about how to behave. And it would have to do with admonishing other people. And it would say, before admonishing anyone, means telling people off, admonishing. Before admonishing anyone, one should reflect thus. In due season will I speak, not out of season. Uh, In truth will I speak, not in falsehood. Gently will I speak, not harshly. For his or her benefit will I speak, not for his or her harm. With kindly intent will I speak, not unkindly. So you should reflect that before admonishing anyone. Especially the one I like about in due season, which means is this the right time to do this or not the right time? When I show that to people, when I remember it myself, when I show it to people, they always say, well, if you reflected this way, you'd never get around to admonishing anybody. (laughs) I think that's absolutely true. And that actually is the basic subtext of Chapter 6 of Shantideva's Guide for the Bodhisattva on Patience. If you reflect, there is no opportunity for anger to be expressed in a way outwards towards other people that will continue to magnify the amount of pain that's present. It's a huge order, but the text is very, very clear. I think I'll read you a little bit from the text. I'll tell you a little bit about the the, the scene there. In uh, it was really a scene. Fourteen hundred people came to this teaching. It was in a hotel outside of Tucson, and you, you might not know the landscape there. It's really like a moonscape. It's the most beautiful mountains, big red rock mountains, and desert around it, and outside, way outside of downtown Tucson, so it's out in the country. And it's kind of like this extraordinary modern hotel landed from the moon or landed from outer space right in the middle of the desert with all luxurious amenities for a large hotel with amenities in the middle of this fantastic um, landscape and skyscape and the entire hotel taken over for the entire week by 1,400 people. So no one was there who wasn't doing this. And so the intensity of the, uh, the vibes there were, were incredible. It was, kind of, uh, it was kind of like a hotel um, a convention in the sense that 
the hallways outside of the meeting hall were filled with concessions, people selling uh, books and holy cards and beads and incense and uh, all the Dharma publication companies had books, book stands out there and videos. Um, so there was that kind of a festive attitude, a- attitude about it. The meals were all part of the, the package for the people staying there. So everyone went to teachings together, went to meals together. The meals were perfectly beautiful. Um, buffet meals, kind of like when you go to a hotel on a Sunday morning and it's got a Sunday morning brunch. So each meal was a wonderful brunch of wonderful vegetarian cooking for the whole week. So everyone ate together, studied together, hung out together, read books together, bought holy cards together, talked about the teachings together. I personally did not step out the door from the time I came there on Friday night until I left the following Thursday. So it builds and it builds and it builds in intensity. And um, His Holiness taught every day from seven, from um, 9 to 11 in the morning and 2 to 4 in the afternoon. There were early morning meditations led by somebody every day. There were videos and slideshows in the lunchtime break. There were more teachings at night by various other people. Something was happening all the time all about patience. There was a tremendous sense of community with strangers. There was no sense of pushing or shoving or impatience. Uh, 1,400 people stood up at the end of a teaching and quietly walked out and went to lunch. There were no hassles anywhere. Crowded halls were filled with a totally benevolent feeling. It's the most amazing thing. I think a reflection of what was being taught and who was teaching it. It's a tremendous sense of reverence that was present there. Um, there was a because of security and because of the uh, respect according accorded His Holiness. Everyone has to be in their seat sitting, and the doors closed before he enters. So, uh, and everybody's got their seat. Everybody sits in their same assigned seat every time. Everybody is in that room, 1,400 people. And here the door opens. Here comes in the entourage. Everyone stands. Everybody stands. Total silence, not a rustle of sound. His Holiness comes in, goes up on the platform in front, does three prostrations. In the most simple way, does three prostrations sits down, unwraps uh, a Tibetan book. You know the, the, you know how Tibetan books are. They don't look like these books. They look like long, skinny uh, piles of paper that have a cover on the top, and they lift off. They're not bound. And he's reading from these little pages, and it's wrapped in a kind of an orange scarf, which he then unwraps and teaches from every time, every one of those teaching <coughs> sessions. The teachings of Shanti Deva's text on patience methodically build the case that there is no possibility and no circumstance in which it is profitable to flurry the mind with anger. Just according to Shanti Deva, according to His Holiness's discussion of Shanti Deva, it just never makes sense. In case you could think of some circumstance where it might make sense, there's, that is already treated in that text. So it's a long chapter. It has a hundred and some verses. And what happened was each of the verses would be read through a translator. His Holiness, although he speaks quite good English and sometimes spoke English, mostly read in Tibetan, spoke in Tibetan, and the translator translated. Verse after verse outlined every possibility in which anger might possibly arise, impatience might give rise to anger, and why that would not be a reflection of clear seeing, why that might not be a good idea. I'll give you some examples. For instance, suppose somebody defames you, your good name is defamed, somebody talks bad about you. That's usually the thing that really gets us to the core. Somebody says something bad about us. We feel we have to vindicate ourselves. So, so suppose somebody talks bad on you, defames you. You think it over patiently and you think, what are the possibilities? 
Either it's true, or it's not true, what they said. (laughs) If it's true, we are practicing, aren't we, to improve ourselves? If it's true, this uh, negative thing that they said about you, you should fix it up. (laughs) And if it's not true, why flurry up your mind with getting upset about it? So that's pretty clear. On to the next. The whole text is so clear. There's just no possibility. So suppose somebody hits you with a stick for something or other. This might be one that I want to, that I want to read to you. Why should I become angry with the yielder of the stick since I'm actually harmed by his stick? He actually is secondary to the stick. He being in turn incited by his own anger. If I wasn't going to be angry at anything, I should really be angry with his hatred. Also, I should reflect, previously I must have caused similar harm to other sentient beings. And therefore it would be right for this harm to be returned to me who is the cause of injury to others. And since both the weapon and my body, the stick and my body, meeting each other, are both the causes of my suffering, since he gave rise to the weapon and I to the body, with whom should I be angry? That's an unusual way for us to think about it. (laughs) If things were brought into being by choice, since no one wishes to suffer, Suffering would not occur in any embodied creature. Nobody has chosen, therefore, to inflict pain. Everything arises according to conditions. Through not being careful, people even harm themselves. Some people harm themselves with unmeritorious deeds. Other people harm themselves in other ways. If, when under the influence of these same disturbing conceptions, people hurt cause cause harm to themselves, how can they be expected not to cause harm to the bodies of other living beings? <coughs> Even if I couldn't develop compassion for these kinds of people who through the arising of these disturbing conditions cause harm to themselves and to others, the last thing I should do is become angry with them. Even if it were in the nature of the childish to cause harm to other beings, it would still be incorrect to be angry with them, for this would be like begrudging fire for having the nature to burn. It's another way to think. If somebody is already causing me pain by hurting me in some way, why would I hurt myself further by allowing anger to arise? This is a whole different way of thinking about anger, that it's actually painful to be angry, and that actually by, by allowing anger to arise, as opposed to taking some action to stop the hurting in every sense that we can, and not to say passively be a recipient of people hurting you, to take every step that you can to stop it. But why add to the pain of the being hurt the pain of anger? It's just a whole other way of thinking about it. It's in a way you can think about anger being a very valuable indicator. Like if I were to take my temperature and discover that I was running a fever and I was just mindful of it and I said, fever, fever, temperature, temperature, it'll pass, it'll pass. And I don't go to a doctor and I don't examine the cause of the fever and I don't take some steps. That would be silly. So that obviously the, the fever is an indicator that something needs to happen, something skillful needs to happen. Just so if anger arises in me, it's an indicator that in some way I'm feeling threatened or I'm being threatened or feeling jeopardized or being jeopardized and I really need to take some skillful considered action to address that. But I don't need in addition to be angry. It's a very crucial and important difference. Some people think that taking action is dependent on being angry. I think that's not so. I think it was clearly part of this teaching 
that actually when we take action out of anger, we're coming from a place of non-clarity and we often don't take the best possible action. That if it is possible for us to use the anger as an indicator that something needs to be done and then decide what would be the best thing to do, we have a much better chance of addressing the situation wisely. Sometimes people are angry way years and years after a hurt has been done. And in a way, it becomes so clear that we continue in that way beating ourselves up with a hurt that happened a long, long time ago. This is an important thing to say some extra words about in terms of Western psychology. Shanti Deva is clearly not talking out of 20th century Western psychology, where we've talked a lot, especially in the last 30 years, about expressing the anger and being in touch with the anger and reclaiming the anger and reclaiming our vitality that's been repressed with the repressed anger. All of that makes sense to me. In a particular way, often I think it's I think it is true to say that often when people sustain um, uh, painful trauma, especially in their childhood, the pain of it is so difficult to bear that they need to repress it. They need to not be aware of it. They need to put it out of their consciousness. They hide it somewhere in their unconscious being. It's part of their conditioning. In addition to the pain that people sustain and feel, the anger that's the natural response to that pain out of fear and out of sadness likewise gets hidden. Frequently the result of that is that people become uncomfortable and frightened about anger and are not comfortable as it arising even as an indicator of distress. Often when that's true, not only are the mechanisms of repression repressing the anger, they're repressing everything else as well because it's hard to make a repression mechanism that selectively holds down one uh, valence of affect and doesn't hold down others as well. So that often people's whole affect is muted because the unconscious is busy holding down that anger because it's afraid of it. Therefore, I believe that it is a very important part of people's psychotherapeutic healing from the traumata, at least of this life, to come in touch with how this body has been inhibited in its feeling and experiencing of sensations, including the sensation of anger, but probably also the sensations of ecstasy and joy and happiness because everything gets muted because it was afraid of it. So that sometimes in people's healings, it's important to feel anger and for anger to come up. It's often a very important part of people's therapeutic healing to find that the anger resonates in their body, that they in fact felt angry that in fact anger is a sustainable and endurable feeling in the body. When we're very young, we don't think so. We're quite overwhelmed by it. And that's why it's repressed. As adults, we can discover anger is an endurable feeling. It can come up, we can feel it, we can know it, it can go through us, and then we can take considered, reasonable, skillful action. So I think that there's a part in healing in which the coming up of anger is important, just to rediscover our bodies and our feelings. What I think people are coming to talk about a lot in psychology and to be more skillful at is um, a kind of catchphrase in psychology, which has been to come to experience the feelings fully and to know when is fully and when is a time to really... um, recondition the mind to new patterns of thinking. Say, now I feel this, how much feeling is necessary for me to reclaim my body and to continue on, and how much is just reconditioning the patterns of mind of struggle around anger. It's a really important part in modern psychology and not so much um, a part of what, what I want to talk about tonight, but I just want to put it in there. Because as I talk about Shanti Deva's ironclad case against the arising of anger and the expressing of anger, I want to tell you that I do have that understanding for its role in uh, reclaiming our, our vitality in this life 
for the the ways in which we've repressed it in this life. Because I know that thought and worry arises in lots of people's minds when we talk about things like the wisdom of seeing through the arising of anger. I feel it's so sad, though, when I... I think sometimes the saddest words I know of when I hear is when somebody says, I will never forgive so-and-so as long as I live. I feel so bad about that because I feel in a certain way the commitment to nurturing that anger is a commitment to keep on hurting oneself. I would much rather somebody would say, I will never go near so-and-so for the rest of my life. That might be a wise thing to say. I want to have nothing to do with so-and-so ever but not to really um, keep the flame of anger burning. Sometimes people talk about um, what happens to spontaneity if you do all this patience, if you think everything over and you consider it all so carefully. What about spontaneity? Often when you ask people what they want to do in terms of uh, personal development, they say, I want to become more spontaneous and act and act out of my truest nature. I want to be very spontaneous as well, but I hope that my level of spontaneity is always somehow connected to my level of clarity. I would feel I would feel good about that. Um, requires a certain healthiness of mind, I think. Somebody, a friend of mine, described his holiness in a, in a phrase which I said, I'm now going to use that to teach. Somebody who was with me at those teachings because um, the Dalai Lama, in a certain way, is so plain and so ordinary. He's unspectacular about his presentation. He sits quietly, doesn't wave his arms around. He's not a fiery orator. Uh, he's not dramatic. He's not. He's plain. He just teaches quietly. But my friend said to me, you know, the thing about him is he has the healthiest mind in the world. And I think so. I think so. I loved the way it reflected in various ways that he taught. At one point when he was teaching, there was a phrase where there'd be a long, he'd explain something in a long way, and then the translator would say that in English. And it was some complicated uh, discussion about if you've said something to somebody and then they've said something back about a third person. So it was a complicated use of pronouns. And then the translator did it over in English. And His Holiness speaks English, so he's always listening to what the translator is doing and frequently corrects him. So he does his thing and the translator does his thing and His Holiness stops him and said, no, it's not that he does to him, it's that he does to him. And then the translator says to him back, but I thought it was that it, he does to him, does to him. It was a pronoun switch. And His Holiness says, no, it was when he did to him. And then he started to laugh, and he said, I'm all confused. (laughs) It was wonderful. Can you imagine the Dalai Lama saying, I'm all confused? (laughs) So I'll tell you one more story. At the very end of uh, the, the chapter on patience, gone on for four days, at the end of four days, uh, came to the last paragraphs. I'll read you some of them. Hmm. From now on, I'll, I'll change a couple, when the words aren't clear, I'll change a couple, but more or less this is it. From now on, in order to delight all the Buddhas, I shall serve the universe and definitely cease to cause harm. There is no doubt that those with the nature of compassion regard all beings the same as themselves. If anyone becomes angry, they cause the pain of hell and experience it themselves. Being kind brings us the happiness of Buddhahood 
which is the fruit that one obtains by pleasing sentient beings. Why do I not always remember that my future attainment of Buddhahood, as well as glory, renown, and happiness in this very life, all come from pleasing sentient beings? While in cyclic existence, patience cause beauty, causes beauty, health, and renown, because of these I shall live for a very long time and win the extensive pleasures of the universal chakra kings. And when he read the last of that, that last verse in Tibetan, suddenly leaned forward, dropped his head forward, and was holding his head in his hands. And I thought, wow, wonder what's happened. I wonder if he suddenly had a pain in his head or suddenly didn't feel well. He suddenly kind of slumped over and was holding his hands in front of his face. And after a while he sat up you could see that he was crying. And it was the, the text builds up for a whole week, for four days. Shantideva has built up a case for why patience is absolutely the road to happiness. There's no other way. There's no getting around it. You think this way? No. You think that way? No. The only way for You think this is a cause for anger? No. You end up with an absolutely ironclad case that the only way to be happy is to be patient and serve others. And he was crying. And it isn't as if he's never read the text before, but it was as if he was so moved by the text himself. And he's read it, I'm sure, hundreds of times before and taught it all those times. And it isn't as if it builds up to a spectacular crescendo like some orchestral piece. It just quietly goes along but it built up over four days, and the intensity of it at the end of it just was overwhelming. And it was overwhelming to the 1,400 people as well. Everybody just sat. And by and by took out a handkerchief and he wiped his face. And then he laughed a little bit, and then he translated it, and it continued. On the last day there was a a bodhisattva initiation, and everyone who wanted to took bodhisattva vows. It's a very moving experience. It's the first time I've ever done that. first time I've had the opportunity to do it and really wanted to do it. Very moving. And that was in the morning. And then in the afternoon, there was to be a green Tara initiation. And at the end of the morning, somebody said, they, you could write a question on a, uh, on a card, and they collected questions, and the translator read the questions, and His Holiness would answer them. And someone had put up a question that said... Um, um, I'm a, a practicing Catholic, and I, I'm very moved by this whole thing and the teachings, and I'd like to be here for this uh, green tar initiation, but I'm worried about it being a sacrament. And since I do Catholic sacraments, do you think there'd be anything uh, inappropriate about my being here for these other sacraments? And His Holiness reflected a little bit, and he gave what I thought was a good answer about it. I think this would be fine, and that would be fine, and if you don't feel right about this part, you might not do that part, but... <laughs> By and large, I thought he gave quite a full answer to the question. And then it was lunchtime, so there was a break. And the 1,400 people went to lunch. His Holiness went, I guess, to lunch. Three hours later, everyone reconvenes for the green tara. And this, uh, the, the front has been all set up with all this special stuff for a green tara initiation with um, all the stuff that you need for an initiation because it's a formal ceremony. And here comes His Holiness in again, greeting all the people along the line as he comes in, sits down. Everyone is waiting for the initiation to begin. And he says, I've been thinking about that question from this morning, about whether or not it's appropriate, and continued a more full answer about why it was. he thought it was really appropriate to do it. But I was so touched by the fact that he said, I've been thinking about it, and I thought he has. This In this lunchtime, where the question was already answered, and he might have gone off and just had lunch, taken a rest and come back, the sense that it didn't matter that there were 1,400 people there. One person had asked that question, and he'd reflected on it further. That was tremendously meaningful to me. 
I wasn't there on the afternoon that he left, but um, on the on the day after the last teachings, in the afternoon, the entourage and His Holiness left to go to Los Angeles, where he was going to be the next day in the weekend. And I heard from someone who was there that the hotel staff all lined up to pay respects to His Holiness and the entourage as they left. And the people who cleaned the rooms in their room cleaning outfits and the um, desk clerks in their outfits and the cooks with their cook hats all lined up and he greeted every single one of them as he left. And they were most of them crying as he left. There is something magic that happens. Just something magic. I won't read you Horton. You read Horton on your own. You remember Horton sat long on the egg and when it hatched it actually was an elephant bird. So that... Do you know that story? How many people here know Horton? Enough. Those who know will tell those who don't know because it's almost 9 o'clock. But Horton sits on, a, on an egg in a nest for a long time through snow and sleet, through all adversity. He's very unhappy, but he endures because it's the right thing to do because he's careful out of concern for the egg and out of impeccability of spirit because he said what he meant, meant what he said and he said what he meant and an elephant's faithful 100%. So he sat and sat and sat through all this adversity and finally when the egg hatches at the end, it's an elephant bird. It had ears and a tail and a trunk just like his and it flew. It was a bird. And he kept it forever. It was his. It was his baby. He sat long. So in a sense, Horton, Horton has two messages. One of them is all things, all good things come to those who wait. And also, patience is its own reward because he got something good at the end and his reward while he sat was knowing he had impeccability of spirit. I think that's why Horton's more like us. Now I'm going to read you about Great Buffalo, who is more like a Buddha. Once upon a time, deep within a jungle, there lived a great being in the form of a wild buffalo. On the outside, he seemed stern and frightening, but on the inside, his heart was gentle and kind. In the same jungle lived a mischievous monkey who insulted and annoyed the buffalo every day. When buffalo was about to feed on grass, monkey would play a trick. You see, he'd get in front of him and he'd say, Try and eat, try and eat, even though I stand under your feet. <laughs> when Buffalo went to bathe in the river, Monkey would play a trick, a different trick. See, he's got his hands over the buffalo's eyes. And he says, and he says Don't slip and fall, don't slip and fall, even though you can't see it all. When Buffalo wished to take a nap, Monkey would play yet another trick. See, there he is sitting on his back again. Give me a ride, give me a ride, or my stick will beat your hide. But Buffalo patiently endured all the tricks. He never hurt the little monkey or even frightened him away and continued to treat him as a friend. One day, a magical forest sprite caught sight of the monkey tricks and became very angry. Oh, great Buffalo! Why do you put up with this foolish monkey, he said. What could you be thinking? Are you afraid of him? Have you become his slave? Does he know some terrible secret about you that he threatens to tell? The strongest lions fear your wrath, and even elephants step out of your path. With those hoofs of yours, you could crush him to bits. With those horns of yours, you could shred him to strips. Oh, forest sprite, the buffalo replied, anger never leads to happiness. Monkey does me a great favor by giving me an opportunity to defeat my anger, to practice patience. By learning patience, I protect myself as well as others. How good I feel inside when I am patient. Anger doesn't upset my heart, and I don't have to, and I don't have to hurt anyone and then feel sorry later. But the forest bright could not understand. This rascal's tricks will only worsen if you don't wise up and teach him a lesson. It's better to be patient, my friend, the buffalo said. 
for this may awaken his inner feelings. Though monkey is mischievous, like all creatures, he possesses a true heart. The forest bite was amazed, for he had figured out for he had not figured out how to handle a tease, even though he knew all manner of magic and spells. Patience, he said, what a magical charm. Could you teach me patience? Could you teach me how to do it? Show me quickly. <laughs> Show me now. I want to know how to use it. To practice patience, replied Buffalo, you need a real rascal to help you. It's no use practicing on kind and gentle creatures, for they don't require any patience. What you need is a good monkey. Would you like to use mine? <laughs> monkey, that tease, if he tried his silly tricks on me, I'd show him some of mine. My friend the buffalo said, you see how hard patience is to practice? But you must keep on trying because it's indeed a magical charm. I learned to be patient thinking about Monkey. His teasing will surely get him into trouble. Sooner or later, he's going to play a trick on some quick-tempered creature who will give him a bad scare or even a beating. Poor Monkey. Then I thought about how lonely he must be. None of the animals wants to be around him. Everyone wishes he would go away. Poor Monkey. Then I thought about how confused he is. He relies on bad qualities instead of good ones, turning all of his cleverness and energy into mean tricks. I feel so sorry for Monkey. I don't wish to cause him any more unhappiness. If you think it through, if I think it through, the forest bride said, the way you do, maybe I can learn to practice patience too. And then the forest bride flew off to practice the wonderful new charm called patience. Just then, Monkey, who'd been hiding in the trees listening to every word, came up to Buffalo. I didn't know I had such a good friend, he said. I didn't think I had any friends at all. How kind and strong you are to be patient with a monkey like me. Please forgive me for teasing and playing mean tricks. Please let me be your friend. If you think of all beings as your friends... Tricks and teasing can do you no harm, for your heart is protected by patience, and patience works like a charm. So here's a picture of the monkey making an offering of grass to the great buffalo. Great story. It's a great story. See, the great buffalo is one step ahead of Horton. It's too bad, too, because I always thought that Horton was the ultimate story for sitters. I was waiting for a time to be able to read Horton to people doing sitting practice because he sat and he sat and he sat and he sat. And I figured the day would sometimes come when I could read Horton and talk about the value of sitting because all good things come to those who wait in addition to patience is its own reward. But I realized today, as I was getting ready to come, that Horton's a pretty good story, but Great Buffalo's a better story. Horton is more like me, and Great Buffalo is more like a bodhisattva. What was particularly extraordinary in being with His Holiness was how ordinary... Well how extraordinary he is in a non-miraculous way. That's not even fair to say either because it's miraculous and change happens. In a non... Um, hmm, hmm, in a way that does not rely on spectacularity, that um, rays of light, at least to me, do not shine out of him, doesn't do anything dramatic to people, doesn't levitate. <laughs> Bells and gongs don't go off of their own. He just sits quietly and teaches. He relates to each person and each question like they're the only person and this is the only interchange that's happening. He's totally present. I think he has the healthiest mind in the world. 
I think those 1,400 people were transformed. I think I was. I, I really know, this is kind of a secret, that in the beginning of my meditation practice, 20 years ago, I really wanted something incredible to happen. Uh, I didn't really know what I really wanted to have happen, but I wouldn't have minded levitating or having lights shine out from me or something spectacular. And that I've been quite clear for a while that's not the point of practice or the goal of practice, but it still held a little fascination for me, I must say. And whatever fascination it held for me, I think is quite gone. If I want to do anything, I really want to be more kind. And I think that the change in me since I'm home, that's been now three or four weeks, is I think I am. I think I'm more patient and I think I'm more kind. Um, And I'm very happy about it. That's really what I want to have happen from my spiritual practice. It's a pleasure to be back here again. Thank you very much for coming. Let's close with a moment of metta. Moment of metta and a moment of dedication. In the moment of shared sensing, how lucky we are to be in a circumstance, in a human body, in a place in the world, at a time in the world, where we can learn these extraordinary teachings, talk about them to each other and share them with each other, these teachings that really lead to happiness. Out of the sense of gratitude that I feel and I'm sure everyone feels, for what a gift it is for each of us to be able to know this and practice this in our lives. To share the awareness that fundamentally all beings have that as the wish of their heart to be happy. So let's make a dedication of whatever merit is ours from sharing Dharma together. Make that as a gift, as a dedication to the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful and may all beings be happy. Thank you. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 18, 1993. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed audience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.